John 20, 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this portion of your word, and we ask as we reflect on it for the next few minutes that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, and wills to obey, and that we might see Jesus high and lifted up, and that we might be transformed by his grace. In his name we pray, amen. Well, when Christ died, the cultures of his day had a particular understanding of death. In the wider Greco-Roman world, death was the end of the story. Death was the last straw. There was nothing on the other side of the grave. Listen to a few popular epitaphs. If you were visiting cemeteries in those days, you could see these inscribed on tombs around the time of Jesus' death. One goes like this, child, be not overly distressed. I was not, I was born, I lived, I am not, that is all. Another one says this, 
All we are kept for death, fed like a herd of swine that are butchered without rhyme or reason. At least our epitaphs are a little bit more positive when we go and visit cemeteries. Uh, the, the, the Greeks and the Romans did not have resurrection hope. So in the culture of Jesus' day, death was the last word. The Israelites, on the other hand, believed in the resurrection from the dead, but they believed that resurrection was something that was going to happen in the future. It wasn't going to happen until the very end of history when God would vindicate his people and raise all faithful people collectively on the last day, on that great judgment day. So for the Greeks and the Romans, death was final. There was no hope beyond the grave. For Israelites, death was final until the end of history when God would act to vindicate them. And so into this world that saw death in this way, something strange happened on the first day of the week when Mary Magdalene came to the tomb very early in the morning. And what she experienced not only became the turning point in her life, but it became the turning point in all of history. And it continues to be the turning point in all of history and the turning point for you and me if we embrace this story. The resurrection of Jesus is the most important event that we must attend to in our lives. Christianity claims that Jesus is Lord, that he is Lord over all, that he is Lord over all history, that he is Lord over all people. And it claims that because of his resurrection that he has been enthroned as the world's true Lord, as the world's true ruler and king. And so we want to examine that claim this morning. And we just want to look at two things from our text together through the perspective of Mary's visit to the tomb. First, we want to look at the famine of the grave. And then second, we want to look at the harvest of the garden, following Mary with her in her journey to reach Jesus this first uh, Easter morn. Under the famine of the grave, notice first its despair. In John 19, we learned that Jesus was buried in a garden. And what is a garden? It's a place full of life. It's a part of the world teeming with life. Birds and butterflies, flowers and trees and fruit. But in this garden, death is blooming. Verse 1 tells us that Mary went in the darkness to a place of darkness she went to a tomb. She went to a grave. She went there experiencing the deep despair of the grave. And notice as she gets there that she experiences further loss. When she gets to the tomb, she discovers that Christ is not where he's supposed to be. And she thinks that somebody has stolen his body. This would have been fairly common as grave robbers would enter into tombs and they would steal the spices and the linens and the other valuables that were there with the body. Grave robbery added to the pain of death as it mocked the reality of suffering, as it mocked the reality of those mourning the loss of their loved ones, and it turned death into a commodity to be bought and sold. 
And so she's experiencing despair. She's experiencing further loss. Also, she's experiencing the loneliness of the grave. Verses 10 and 11 tell us that she is left all alone in her sadness. There's no indication that Peter and John ever try to console her, ever try to mourn with her, to weep with her, to comfort her. She is by herself experiencing this loss, this pain, this bitterness all alone. And what we know about Mary from other places in the gospel is that she is someone who has had a very shameful past. She's been in prostitution. She was possessed by demons. She was an outcast. And now it looks like her life is going to return to be an outcast once again. Who would want to be with her now? Who would love her as Jesus did? Who would accept her as Jesus did? No one. Nobody. And so she's outside of the tomb weeping bitterly alone. And then notice as well the doubt of the grave. Mary tells us twice that she does not know what has happened to the Lord's body. She does not know what is happening in the world at this moment. She is ignorant of any greater story taking place. She's ignorant of any greater turn in the story about to take place. She had thought that Jesus would be the Messiah. She had thought that Jesus would be the Savior. But now her heart and her mind are flooded with doubts. Maybe she's wrong. Maybe she had been following Jesus, giving new life to Jesus, finding her identity in Jesus, finding her community in and through Jesus, and now that's all gone. And her only companion is her doubts. She's experienced the famine of the grave through her despair, the famine of the grave through further loss, the famine of the grave through loneliness, and the famine of the grave through doubt. And you see what has happened to Mary as she's gone to the tomb in darkness early on this morning. A garden, a place that's supposed to be full of joy and life and delight, has suffered the famine of the grave. And it continues to suffer the famine of the grave in ways that she is experiencing. And friends, the Bible teaches us that we were made for life. We were made for the garden. When God made human beings, he placed them in a garden. And because of sin, they were uprooted from the life of the gardens and began to experience the reality of the grave. And we experience the ongoing effects and consequences of the grave all around us in every aspect of our lives. Some of us here this morning are experiencing and suffering from the famine of the grave in real and acute ways. And overwhelming ways for us even. The grave is real. Death is all around us. Christianity isn't a religion that tries to sugarcoat life and say everything's happy and good and everything in life is, is beautiful and glorious. No, Christianity speaks candidly about the reality of darkness about the reality of trials, about the reality of death, about the overwhelming nature of the grave. 
And when we experience the reality of death, whether it's in small deaths or whether it's in real and acute and overwhelming deaths, when we experience the reality of death, the death of our children, the death of parents, the death of friends, don't our hearts break? Aren't we burdened by its power? Aren't we wounded by its sting? Can't we identify with Mary and identify with her struggle and her pain and her loss? And you see, until we follow Mary through the darkness of death, we'll never, ever understand what she experienced next and what we can experience as well through grace. See, Easter, resurrection, salvation, the reality that Jesus has conquered the grave, it's not born of springtime and just another rotation of the earth. It's not born of Hallmark cards or bunnies or chickens or lilies or candy. Easter, resurrection, salvation is born of the howls of humanity, of those exiled from the garden of life, of those suffering under the famine of the grave. It's born of the cries of people like Mary saying, how long will someone deliver us? Will someone save us? Will the grave be conquered? Will we not be mocked in our pain as we come to the grave? And the overwhelming answer of Christianity is yes. There is someone who has conquered the grave. There is someone who has conquered death. And through Christ, the famine of the grave gives way to the harvest of the garden. And that's what we see in Mary's life as the story unfolds. So let's look at the harvest of the garden. Notice that for Mary, hope displaces despair. Hope displaces despair. We see this in verse 13 when the angels ask her, Woman, why are you weeping? Now, at first glance, this might be a cruel and unusual question to Mary. Mary's at a cemetery. Cemeteries, by definition, are places where people come to weep, where people come to mourn. And she could have answered the angels something like this. You know, what kind of question is that? My friend is dead. His body is gone. I'm alone in the world. I'm a despised follower of a condemned criminal, a former demon-possessed prostitute who has lost everything. Do you have any other questions for me? But this isn't a mean-spirited question. It's the exact opposite. It's a question full of hope. It's a question full of wonder. It's a question full of surprise. It's a question full of grace. Maybe not weeping is possible. Maybe not mourning is conceivable. Maybe not despairing is imaginable. And so we see that hope displaces despair. The next thing we see is that restoration displaces loss. In verse 16, when Mary's eyes are open, when Mary turns to embrace her Lord, when Mary hears the voice of her Savior, 
when Mary sees him clearly, everything is restored. Jesus sweetly and tenderly calls her as the good shepherd. She hears his voice. She comes to him and finds rest. Is there any more tender moment in Scripture than when we see Mary and Jesus embrace? Her identity is restored. Her intimacy is restored. Fellowship is restored. Community is restored. Hope is restored. In this one turn, when Mary sees her Savior, Mary's life would forever change. In this one turn, the world would change. In this one turn, history would have new meaning. What God did for Mary in this one turn was show her who he really is, that he is the Savior, that he is the King, that he is the Lord, that he is the one who has conquered the grave. And then in verse 17, Jesus tells Mary not to cling to her. And when Jesus tells Mary, do not cling to me, he's not saying to her, as it were, don't touch me. Get your hands off of me. Instead, he's saying to her, as it were, Mary, you don't have anything to fear. I am here for you. Everything is being restored. Everything is coming new. But the story isn't yet over. We're not going to remain in this embrace. There is still work that needs to be done. My ascension must come next. I must go to the Father for you. So don't cling and hold on to this moment too tightly. Because there are more turns in the story, Mary. There are more things that must happen. And so go and get my brothers. And that's exactly what she does. And we see that loneliness is replaced by community. Loneliness is replaced by community. A few days earlier, Jesus had called his disciples his friends, but some friends that they turned out to be. All of them had abandoned him, except for John. Only John was present at his death. But now Jesus doesn't tell Mary, go get my friends. Rather tenderly and graciously, Jesus tells Mary, go get my brothers. If you want a clear picture of what the gospel means, this is it. That Jesus identifies with us as brothers. That Jesus has come to restore everything. That Jesus has come to make us new. To give us a new relationship with him. What love, what grace, what tenderness, what affection in these words. Go get my brothers. And Mary who is left all alone at the graveside, now has true community. She goes to get her brothers. She's reunited with her Lord, who isn't ashamed to identify with her brothers. And she is reunited with this community. And so we see at the grave, as the grave becomes a garden, that hope is replaced, or, or that there's hope, that there's new life, there's new community, and finally, we want to see that mission replaces doubt. In Mary's journey, mission replaces doubt. John makes it clear to us that Jesus isn't a ghost. John makes it clear to us that Jesus really died, 
and that Jesus really rose in a true body, that Jesus really is a resurrected man who in just a little bit will ascend in his true body to his father, and he will be enthroned as Lord and King of all. And in Christ's death, it was hard for his followers to believe that Jesus was a king, that Jesus was going to ascend to the throne. It appeared that in Christ's death that the powers were victorious. It seemed as though everything were out of control. This one who they thought would be the Messiah, who they thought would be the king, who they thought would be the Lord, has been conquered by the powers. But through the resurrection, we learn that Jesus really is the Lord and the Savior. Through the resurrection, we really learn that the grave does not reign, but rather Christ reigns. And through the ascension that Jesus tells Mary is going to happen, that he will go to his Father, we learn that he has been enthroned at God's right hand. And by being enthroned in God's right hand, he will send his Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, he will give a mission to the church. He will give gifts to the church. He'll give graces to the church. He'll give his power to the church so that they can live and continue this story that has begun that first Easter morn. He will tell the church that they're not people of the grave, but people of the garden. He'll tell the church that they can continue the mission and the work that he began because he now reigns at his father's right hand. And we see this all at play in this new mission, this new work that's about to occur in Jesus' world when Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener. John, throughout his gospel, is telling us a story of new creation. John opens up his gospel with the same words of Genesis, in the beginning. And so throughout John's gospel, he's telling us that what God is doing through Jesus is new creation. He's remaking reshaping, restoring his world. And in verse 15, Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener. And we shouldn't just skip over this and say, oh, what a, what a silly, stupid mistake. Rather, John is making a rich and powerful point for us. When God first revealed himself to us in Genesis, God appeared to us as a gardener. He had his hands in the dirt, creating a world. Day one, he worked in one area of his garden. Day two, another. Day three, yet another. And in day six, he got his hands in the dirt, making man. He made a perfect man. He made a beautiful man who reflected his image. A man who would rule as a true king in his world. But that man turned out to be a traitor. And the story could have ended right there in judgment. But God in his mercy and grace promised that he would send another man into the world to fix everything that the first man had ruined. He would remake the garden. He would restore the garden to his people. When Jesus was presented to Pilate on the sixth day of the week, the same day that God created Adam, do you remember what Pilate said? He said, behold, the man. Jesus stood before Pilate as the perfect man, as the perfect image of God, as the perfect ruler and king in God's world. 
And on the cross at the end of the sixth day, Jesus finished all of his work. And on the seventh day, Jesus rested from all of his labors. And now on the eighth day, on the first day of the week, Jesus arose victoriously. And he arose as a gardener. He arose to remake and reshape his world. Just like his father, Jesus' hands are in the dirt as a gardener. And he was dramatically and symbolically teaching us that the world will not ultimately experience the famine of the grave, but the harvest of the garden. What Adam lost in his garden, Jesus will restore in his. Jesus will regain in his. Friends, Jesus is the first fruit of this great harvest. Easter, the Easter season is the first day of God's new harvest But the harvest didn't stop on that first day. The harvest didn't end with Mary. The harvest continued through Mary as God sent Mary on mission to go tell her brothers this good news. Mary became the first herald of the gospel. Mary lived out this good news that we have access to the garden and invited her brothers into this story as well. And there are some of us who... Read the scriptures, read the story of the resurrection, and we want to discount it as myth. We want to discount it as legend, or just as a really nice and hopeful story, but we don't want to take it as real history. John doesn't ever leave us with that possibility. And one of the ways that we know this is how John makes Mary the central figure She's the first one to see the risen Christ. She's the first one to proclaim the good news of the risen Christ. If John weren't writing history as it happened, he would never have placed Mary in this role. He gives to Mary a mission. But the mission doesn't end with Mary. It continues because Christ really did ascend to his Father. And Christ really did send out his Holy Spirit into the world And because Jesus has given his Holy Spirit as a gift to his church, that mission and that story continues through us. We are his laborers. We are his gardeners. We are to get our hands in the dirt. And by his grace, remake and reshape the world as well. At the end of John 20, we didn't read this section, but at the end of the passage, Jesus breathes on his disciples and gives them the Holy Spirit. He gives them the gift of the Spirit so that they can go out into the world and face the grave, but face the grave in the hope of the garden, that they can transform graves into gardens. And so what field has God called you to work in? Where has he placed you to be a gardener? What what soil has he called you to till? How has God uniquely gifted and graced you to be a gardener in your homes, in your neighborhoods, in your places of work, so that you might bring his life and love to the world? Easter, the story that we read here in John chapter 20, gives us hope that God really is bringing life to his world, that the grave is not the end of the story that the garden will be victorious 
that the world will be renewed into the garden of God. That God really is making all things new. And just like Mary, we need eyes to see. We need to take that turn and behold Jesus for who he really is as a risen and reigning Lord who is also the gardener who is with us. Friends, my dad is legally blind. Through science and technology, doctors were able to create a prescription strong enough to allow him to see. Growing up, he had those big, oversized Coke bottle glasses. And even with those glasses, he'd have to hold a book about two inches from his eyes just to read. As a kid, my older brother and I used to have competitions to see who could wear his glasses the longest. We never lasted that long because as soon as you put them on, everything became blurry. When you put them on, you'd quickly get a nasty headache. And that's how it was, is for us when we try to understand our world apart from the resurrection. Without the resurrection, this world only gives you a nasty headache. But through the resurrection, God's purposes begin to be clear. Through the resurrection, we, like Mary, can turn and we can see and our eyes can be opened and we can see Jesus for who he really is. Through the resurrection, we can see that the grave is not the end of the story, but we can see that Jesus has conquered the grave and that Jesus is at work to remake and to renew his world into a garden. And so we're called to go from this place, to be sent out to our households, to our places of work, to our schools, to our neighborhoods. And we're called to announce and to embody that the world isn't defined by the grave, but the world is defined by the garden, by God's life, by God's renewal, by God's resurrection hope. By his spirit, in our work this week, in our lives this week, we're to give people little tastes of garden life, little tastes of resurrection hope as we love, as we forgive, as we serve, as we care for others in Jesus' name. It's just a little teeny tiny taste of resurrection life, but it is a real taste of resurrection life. It's a real embodiment that the grave does not define us, but Jesus' garden and his new life in the world defines us. Friends, Jesus, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, is also a gardener. And he's at work to till up our cold hearts, to make us new. And he's at work to send us out into his world, to make the world new to be gardeners in his name. So what can you do this week to give others a small but real taste of his resurrection life? How can you live out the harvest of the garden this week rather than the famine of the grave? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are overwhelmed by your mercy and your love and your grace toward us. We're overwhelmed by the reality that Mary experienced when she went to the grave on Easter morn and was surprised to discover what she found. And Lord, we ask that we, with Mary, that we, through your spirit, 
might experience what Mary experienced, that we might experience you to be tender and merciful and gracious to us, that we might experience your love, that we might see you as a gardener who really is making all things new. For this, we need your help. For this, we need your spirit. For this, we need your grace. Pray that you'd give it to us today and this week. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.